to us, for us. And uh, the more I talk to him about it, I feel really privileged that he's spent such time and effort. Uh, if you were here last week, I know I left in a very humbled state. And I thought about uh, last week's teaching all, all week and, and, and what it meant to me. And, and uh, we, we truly are grateful to have Dr. Lloyd here. And, and I hope you are very appreciative of the work that he's doing for us. In addition, to even glorify that moment more, he's made his uh, presentations available on the website uh, in uh, PowerPoint form. And uh, those are, should be up no later than probably today or tomorrow, and you can find them. And uh, another great resource if you want to continue to study beyond the confines of this class. So in gratitude, let's, let's open in prayer. Father God, we truly are grateful to have this opportunity to come to worship, to study, and to give praise to you. For you have made us, you sustain us, and all good things come to us through you. And we do give you thanks. And you reveal yourself to us in so many ways. And this morning as I prepared and reflected back on last week, I saw the picture that's in the front of the room. And it reminded me of a, a woman, a Samaritan woman and a Jewish male, our Lord Jesus Christ, meeting in an unusual place, seeming somewhat random. And she was confused by the request to give him a drink, and she had excuses. And they were both bound by these problems of gender and ethnicity and purpose. And yet, Jesus on purpose made this confusion. She told him that she appeared to be a wife of one man, and he told her that that wasn't true. And the message came out that we are to understand truth and spirit and light. And I thought about the Bible as we study it, and all these people would come together just as these two did at the well, carrying their own backgrounds, their own genders, their own beliefs, their own confusions, and yet our Bible was written in that way for us to figure out, to search and to find that truth, that light in our spirit and in the spirit of our Lord Jesus Christ. And to that point, we pray today that you bless this time of study, that you help us find that truth and that spirit, that we may continue to walk in the light not only today, but every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how's everyone doing today? Good to see you again. I was a little disappointed when I looked on the internet to find out that these are hard to find. Did you ever have one of these? Little uh, puzzle, slide puzzle? And often it'd be a, a picture of something or it would be some words that you put together. Well, my mother bought me one of these when I was a child. And it had this on it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. I remember at the time she handed it to me, I thought, well, this is kind of dull. In the sense that I wanted it to have a picture. <laughs> <laughs> Or, <laughs> 
But I did it. I would unscramble it and scramble it. I don't know how many times I probably did it. And those words kind of soaked into me, I guess. Um, I wasn't even sure uh, what they meant at first. But through doing that puzzle over and over and over, that passage started to mean something to me. Then, uh, recently I read an article by Stephen Katz called The Hebrew Bible as Another Jewish Sophistic. And it changed everything about the way that I see that puzzle and the way that I see those words. So there's the reference. It's in a book called Ancient Greek and Non-Greek Rhetorics. And what Katz begins with is something I hadn't really thought about. I teach uh, the Bible's literature, and we talk about that the Hebrew ordering is different than the ordering of the Greek version of the Old Testament, and that the Christian ordering is slightly different. <coughs> but I hadn't really thought about that, uh, that concept that's so important to everything I've been talking about. What was the intention of the order? Like, order makes a big difference, doesn't it? Before I do these slideshows for you, often I'll move slides around because I think order makes a huge difference when you encounter the information. And in fact, I'm teaching his ideas out of order, and I'm teaching it in a way that I think will make sense to you. So the order of the Jewish, Jewish Bible, the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew language Bible, is that the Torah is first, and that's, mis that's kind of mistranslated as law, and it's misunderstood as the word law uh, later in Jewish history, but originally it means the teachings. So it's just, these are the fundamental teachings. Then the prophet, ne the Nebim, and notice that it's a different list. Samuel and Kings are in the prophets, because they're going by the time of the prophets rather than um, trying to put history all together or whatever. And then there are the writings. The Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Esther, Ecclesiastes, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. These are also the last books to be included in the canon. So they're actually kind of in order. The canon began with the Torah, they added the prophets, and then they added the writings. So although we read them in a different order, if you read the Old Testament, um, this is a little more historically aligned. Now, what Katz says is very interesting. He's looking at the Hebrew Bible of the Tanakh, and it includes the Torah, the teachings, the prophets, and the writings. But what he says is this. In the Hebrew canonical order, as the Tanakh unfolds the course of biblical Jewish history, or in terms of what we've been talking about, the mythos, the story, God grows distant and increasingly removed from the human world. Well, I found this intriguing. I thought, hmm. Because the older I get, the less likely I am to find things either wrong or right. I tend to find them kind of like, that's an interesting idea. I might not totally agree, but I'm going to go somewhere with that. I find that everybody has a little bit of truth and I no longer try to, to think of myself as knowing all the truth or other people either. So I thought, well, what, does, what truth does he have? 
<coughs> now, he also notes that the Christian order, which follows the Greek, but we'll get to that in a minute, puts the former prophets in history and reverses the writings in the prophets. So the former prophets, they put into the historical books, then the writings in the prophets reverse. Now, it doesn't take any genius to see already that that is a different rhetorical move. That means that in the Christian version, the Bible ends with the prophecies, which is important for Christianity because it establishes itself on the idea that it is the prophecies that lead to the New Testament. So the ordering being different makes a huge difference. It makes a difference in reverse. If you look at how the Bible ends in the Jewish Bible, it ends with Chronicles, with Second Chronicles. And really Ezra and Nehemiah, because Ezra and Nehemiah follows Second Chronicles. But Second Chronicles ends with um, the Babylonian captivity, so that the Jews are living in Babylon. And it ends with actually Cyrus the Great, Cyrus the Persian king, deciding to give them the money to move back to Jerusalem and reestablish the temple. So you can see in terms of the logic of the Jewish story, it ends with the rebuilding of the temple. So Ezra and Nehemiah is about the rebuilding of the temple after it had been destroyed by the Babylonians. All right, so this is all making some sense. So in the Hebrew version, the prophets are just a period in the middle, but what's important is the reestablishment of the temple. And it's the history, the story, the mythos that's important. The prophets are just a period in that mythos. But what Katz is trying to say is that it's significant also because what happens during that time is if you look at the books at the beginning and all the way through, you see that in the, in the first books, God speaks directly to humans, right? And then once the law is given, things begin to change. And so God begins to speak through prophets. And then by the time you get to the end, God speaks through the Tanakh, the Bible itself. All right. The reordering took place, the reordering, the changing of the Hebrew uh, order took place when the Bible was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint in 3rd century BCE. Many Jews now living under the Greek rule and culture did not speak or read Hebrew. It also changed the emphasis of the scriptures. So again, it's very interesting, just as we saw that as the different redactors redacted the Bible, the movement went more and more towards God uh, as more distant, but also God is being found in ritual and God is being universal. And that movement led to the world of the New Testament. This too makes a difference in the world in the New Testament. And that the shift from the Greek perspective, what was important were the prophecies, and so they put that last. That leads to the New Testament era. So Greek perspectives were shaping the way the Bible was read, and New Testament writers relied on the Septuagint, not the Hebrew version. In the Hebrew order, Solomon is the last king to speak directly to God conversationally. That places him in the, in the time of the kings. The prophets then serve as mouthpieces and their period lasts until the fall of Jerusalem. And of course there's an overlap of those periods that 
Um, while the king is speaking directly face to face to God, there's Nathan the prophet, and so there are prophets at the time, there's an overlap. But there's a shift in perspective in that no longer do kings speak for God, and you don't find any of the kings after Solomon speaking directly to God. They always go to prophets to find answers. By the time we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, it establishes the Tanakh as the voice, the word of God. We no longer need the prophets because now we have what has come to be known as the Bible. So I don't think it's any just coincidence that the Bible is fully redacted during this time and the canon is closed. They're done. No more books of the Bible. <laughs> and Daniel was one of the last to be brought in. Daniel, Ecclesiastes, Esther. All right. Something else that Katz points out is that there's a movement towards God speaking to God being silent. In Job, the last book of poetry, though Job makes his case with God and has heard, he is moved to silence. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, what is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Now, it's interesting he sa- but he doesn't say, I saw you. He says, you spoke. Am I making any sense? <laughs> so he sees, but it's speech. Because if you look at what he sees, it's just speech that he's picturing. He doesn't, like, look at God face to face. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Ecclesiastes, the last of the five scrolls, questions the simplistic do-good-and-be-blessed concept of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes kind of daringly says, It is the same for all. There is one fate for the righteous and for the wicked, for the good, for the clean, for the unclean, for the man who offers a sacrifice, and for one who does not sacrifice. That's an amazing sentence following the book of Proverbs, which says basically, if you do good, God will bless you. If you do evil, God will curse you. It's interesting that they're both in the Tanakh. And there were, there were a lot of arguments about whether Ecclesiastes should be in the Tanakh. <coughs> Interestingly enough, a redactor puts the last sentences on Ecclesiastes because I think the redactor's like, what the hey? <laughs> this doesn't really seem to fit. But you know, we, we've decided it's scriptural. So the redactor says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. So he's like, okay, let me sum this up for you. And look what he says for the sum. Fear God, keep his commandments. In other words, shut up and obey, right? So there's a movement from listening, one-on-one, talking to God, to representatives, speaking to God, uh, you know, speaking through, being spoken through, to just the scripture. God is the voice of the scripture. That's your duty. I don't know. I, I remember uh, one of the things that 
stuck with me when I read the book of Psalms is how many of them talk about God being silent. You ever heard them? Do not be silent. Do not hide that face. Over and over. Psalms is a later addition to the book. Even though some of the Psalms come from very early times, they weren't put together until later. Habakkuk is also a very late prophet. What does he say? Some think that he wasn't even in what we call the testamental period. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you what? When the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they. So Habakkuk might have written even in the time of the Maccabees, a much later period, uh, actually what we call the intertestamental period, so he was very late to the canon. Job, another book late to the canon. When he keeps quiet, who then can condemn? And when he does what? Hides his face. Who can then behold him? That is in regard to both nation and man. Job was probably written about the 6th century B.C. Again, an earlier story that was kind of adapted to later ends. And then all through the Psalms. To you, O Lord, I call my rock. Do not be deaf to me. For if you are silent to me, I will become like those who go down to the pit. Psalms were compiled and put together in the present form of some unknown editor shortly after the captivity ended, 537 B.C., so basically when they're ending the canon. Psalm 83.1, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. O God, do not be still. Psalm 109, O God of my praise, do not be silent. So Katz says this, he says, rather than certainty, diffuse anxiety is more characteristic of the mood of the Tanakh. So I want to take a careful look at what Katz is trying to say, as usual in kind of my own way. <laughs> so he doesn't do a lot of the things that I'm doing. I went through and I tried to find ways to support what he's saying so that we can see why he's saying what he's saying, which he didn't actually say. Wow, that was confusing. <laughs> because Katz is speaking from a knowledge of other things that he's written, and he's speaking from a, ba a really fundamental knowledge of the scriptures, sometimes he doesn't say things. He implies them, and I just want to get more literal and actually look at them. So what I want to do is look at five different covenants, and there actually is... One more covenant I didn't look at, but it also fits the pattern, the covenant that Solomon makes when he, when he built the temple. I want to look at the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Moses, the renewal of the covenant in Josiah's reforms, which as you've seen is when uh, the Deuteronomists brought their version of the, of the history in, and then the renewal of the covenant when Nehemiah and Ezra established their temple. So this would be the time of the priestly redaction that we've been talking about. So really, we're kind of going through um, the J, E, P, uh, D, and P sources that I've been talking about the other weeks. Okay. Another thing that Katz does is he, he uses uh, four levels of interpretation that were developed by the Hebrews for studying the Bible. And the first level of for studying the Bible is called Peshat, the plain reading of the text, the storyline. When I teach literature classes, I'm like, well, we may not agree what this story is, but we will agree what it's about. That's Peshat, which is 
you know, if we're reading, um, uh, trying to think of a story, or a, a poem, we're reading Stopping by the Woods on a Snowy Evening. If we're looking at that poem, well, it's about, you know, stopping by the woods on a snowy evening. So you can't have <laughs> someone in the class going, well, I think the story's about, you know, playing video games. Okay, so Peshat is the most basic level. And Peshat, it's interesting because what we're talking about here, the Peshat, the storyline is very important. I've already said the Hebrew storyline is different than the, the Septuagint, and it's different than the Christian storyline. So it makes a huge difference what the flow of the plot is. All right, the Greek Christian ordering ensures that the Bible ends in prophecy. The Jewish order ends in Second Chronicles with Babylonian captivity, the fall of Jerusalem, and Cyrus the Persian's proclamation to rebuild the temple. Historically, Second Chronicles follows, is followed by Ezra and Nehemiah, and the temple is rebuilt and the covenant renewed. The two orders indicate different stories, mythos. Jewish identity is tied to Jewish history, their mythos, and that's why every time anybody gets together for a covenant, what do they do? They repeat the story. Greek ideas about rhetoric are persuasion, obscure, more subtle Hebrew methods of rhetoric. So we're also looking at how the rhetoric creates the mythos. Okay, now, I'm going to look at a lot of verses, but I highlighted what I think is important. Then God blessed Noah and his son, saying to them. So here he's not just speaking to Noah, but also to his sons. Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Everything that lives and moves about you. And this is considered a covenant for all humanity. And it's also a justification that humans don't have to be vegetarians. <laughs> and there you go. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be uh, a flood to destroy the earth. So God is speaking to Noah in a very old story. Then if we look at the covenant with Abraham, which we looked at the last week, when the sun had set, the darkness had fallen, smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, and what did he do? He said to your descendants, I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites. I used to have a, one of my teachers who would add mosquito bites in the middle of that to see if anybody was paying attention. <laughs> I'm on the, of the mosquito bite tribe. <laughs> so Moses summoned all Israel, and he said to them, Hear, O Israel. This is really interesting if you look at it from Kat's point of view. Hear, O Israel, the statutes and ordinances which I proclaim in your hearing this day, that you may learn them and take care to observe them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb, not with our ancestors. And Horeb marks that this is a Deuteronomist version. Not without our ancestors did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, all of us who are alive this day. Here we go. Face to face, the Lord spoke with you on the mountain from the midst of the fire. And while I was standing between the Lord and you at that time to announce to you these words of the Lord, 
since you were afraid of the fire and would not go up to the mountain. So how do the people react? They are speaking to God face to face. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the house of slavery. You shall not have any gods other gods beside me. So then the Ten Commandments follow. I want to contrast this with a later story, the time of Josiah's reforms. Hilkiah the high priest, so this is a much later time period. It's after the north has fallen and only the southern kingdom of Judah is survived. And this is a time when Josiah discovers, or what is discovered is what we think is, are the rudiments of the Deuteronomist point of view. I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan, who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported it to him. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest. Akikam, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, all his son of whoever, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. See the difference? We have these words, but he doesn't even consider talking directly to God doesn't even occur to him. Now, back to Deuteronomy. These words the Lord spoke with a loud voice to you, your entire assembly on the mountain from the midst of the fire and the dense black cloud, and added no more. And what? He went to <laughs> silence. He added no more. He inscribed them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. But when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, you came near to me, all your tribal heads and elders, and said, The Lord our God has indeed let us see his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. So they never saw God face to face, but they did hear his voice. Today we have found out that God may speak to a mortal, and that a person may still live. Now, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. But what mortal has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we and lived? You go closer and listen to all the Lord our God is say, and tell us what the Lord our God tells you, and we will listen and obey. So basically the people hand off their right to speak to God to Moses. And you can see a transition to the age of the prophets, that the prophets are the spokespeople for God. All right, so if we look at the other story, the later story. So Hokiah the priest and Akiham and Achwar and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, which is interesting gender-wise, isn't it? Fate of Judah resides in this book, perhaps. And who do they go to? A woman. Write that one down for your records. The prophetess. The wife of Shalom, of course, you can't have a woman without naming her husband. The son of Tikva, son of, okay, fine, keeper of the wardrobe. Wow, that's interesting. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. So we see in these two passages that Second Kings reflects this shift from God speaking directly to his people to speaking through intermediaries and finally to speaking only through the Tanakh because she's going to say yes this is the word of the Lord and they're not going to say obey 
Hulda, they're going to say what? Obey this book. All right. So basically, Moses tells them, well, okay, you're afraid, so I will be your spokesperson. And he says in verse 31, Then you will stand here near me, and I will give you all the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinance, and you must teach them, and they may observe them in the land I'm going to them possess. So basically, you no longer hear the voice of God, but you have his words. Here's what Kat says. He gets a little sarcastic. So tenuous is their relationship that God has to write the basic principles down for the Israelites twice. As you recall, Moses broke them the first time. Now this is what I thought was intriguing. God has to write. As a writing teacher, that's very interesting. And so begins the slow process of God's removal from the immediacy of human life world. Now, let's skip forward in history again to the time of Nehemiah. Remember, this is the time Nehemiah and Ezra are uh, the leaders when they rebuild the temple under Cyrus. So in, a lot, in, in terms of the Hebrew Bible, this is the end of the Bible. This is the end of the story. What did they do? When they go to reestablish the covenant... Nobody talks to God face to face and there's no prophet. What have you got? They stood where they were and did what? They read from the book of the law of the Lord. It's come all the way to that. To where it's no one is there speaking face to face and no one is there as an intermediary. There's just the Tanakh. Interesting that little verse right there. And standing on the stairs were the Levites. Remember last week? <laughs> the Levites were traveling to establish themselves. This is the first reference in the Bible to the full re a reading of the full Torah. The first five books. So this is the first time they've ever existed all together. And it's the last historical book in the Bible. So it's very full circle. You read them first if you start. The, but this, and so we end the historical period with the reading of the first five books for the first time, which is established by Ezra, as I talked about last time. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. So he, he talks about the history, and he goes through, but you can see the end of it all is the Tanakh. All right. Probably don't need it. Okay. And what do the people do? Verse 38, in view of all of this, because he reviews their whole history, their story, their mythos, and in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, but what are we doing? Nobody's ever done this before. We put it in writing. Nobody ever did that before to covenant. Isn't that crazy? That's another thing I talked about last week, that writing culture was so powerful, or the first week, writing culture is so powerful to the north and to the south. The invention of writing occurs in the, with um, Sumerians and the Egyptians. Both cultures write above and below. So the Israelites become the people of the book in a very literal way, as Katz points out. 
All right. So Katz continues. In the book of Ezra, the Torah is read publicly and probably for the first time. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah present, in effect, both an objectification and a functional incarnation of the Lord God. The mind of God is objectified in his law, which is now written down in multiple copies and interpreted and translated, as may be necessary for every Jew. The divine scroll contains all that God needs to say. He need not speak again, and he does not. The canon of the Hebrew Bible draws to a close, and there begin several hundred years of relative silence until the New Testament era. In fact, if you look online, they call this the period of silence. Now, a lot was happening during that period, which we've talked about before and probably will again, but... So Katz says that what is established, he calls it a trope of desire, and he's basing a couple of his ideas on some literary theories that I'm going to try to put in a nutshell. Okay, so he says we can also read the scriptures. Remember, the first level is to look at the story, the Peshat. But the second level of interpretation is Resh, allegory. What does this story mean? What does it stand in for? And he reads it as a trope of desire. This makes sense to me on sort of an allegorical level, so I guess that's ironic. But... If someone is absent from, for instance, uh, my father has passed away, and one of the things that my mother gave me was some writing that he did. And it's very precious to me, because he was starting to write his life story. Unfortunately, <laughs> he's only five <laughs> when it stops. So he didn't continue it, and I'm very disappointed, because I'd like to know beyond maybe five years old, but it's very fascinating, because I don't have... This, this creates a trope of desire, right, in me. When I get to the end of that, I miss my father in ways that are really profound. Like, he can't finish this story. That ki- that's what I think Katz is going for, is, is we have this trope of withdrawal that creates within us a desire, right? So, in one sense, the biblical God has removed himself from the world, world, leaving only his words. But in the Hebrew concept of language, this means a desire for the presence in the absence. <laughs> okay, we'll get to that. Jacques Lacan, a famous French philosopher, says humans are driven by the unattainable, the objet petit autre. He's like, we all pursue impossible things. It's built into us. And so Katz uses that idea to say that built into us is this desire for the unattainable, the unnameable. The Tanakh itself becomes an uncertain trace of the absent God in in Judaism. He's basing this idea on the ideas of Jacques Derrida, which I left the S off his name, also a French philosopher, why are there so many French philosophers? Because the German philosophers lost a lot of street credibility in two world wars. They ruled. <laughs> France took over, the existentialists. Jacques Derrida, also a French philosopher, proposed that words in language bear traces of meaning from their past histories. I'm always fascinated by that. What did the word mean? How did we get these words? How long has it been here? 
So he says meaning is never present. It's known only through difference, deferred, and endless traces of meaning. And he mixes those two words, which are similar because of the Latin bases of French and English. He calls this difference, which just sounds so much fun. It means that all words just endlessly defer. No matter what word we look at, the more you look at it, the less you can define it. All right, so now we're at the Hebrew concept of words, the interpretation level number three, the drash. I've always heard midrash, but I didn't realize it comes from drash, which means to dig or to study. So now we're getting serious. All right, what he points out is that in the Greek world that surrounds the intertestamental period, the base and the one that shapes the way we think about language he says the basic telos of Greek rhetoric is persuasion. However, there is no word in the Torah that co corresponds to the Greek words for persuade, persuasion, or be convinced. And the Greek word telos means the ultimate end, teleology. He says this, the, telo, the telos of the Tanakh is a rhetorical as a rhetorical theory is not persuasion but creation of reality. I'd say they did a good job. The Bible stories caught on, didn't they? They become a part of just the basic mythos of the entire planet to some level. And its manifestation in the interpretation and language of the material text. And then a very intriguing sentence. God, the master rhetorician, creates the world by speaking. So in a sense, it's, it's like language is all we have, but then on the, in another sense, this is not the language we think of in terms of Greek. It's not language trying to badly imitate reality. It's language the creator of reality. So we're on the Hebrew interpretation level four, sod, the secret. In the Greek view, the word idea comes from the Greek eidos. See, there is what Derrida was talking about. Where do words come from? Eidos, which means image. It really literally means little god. Idea. Yes? What do I have in my head? A little god. <laughs> the word theorea comes from thea and horon. Notice that the word for god is theos to see a revelation. Reflects the Greek drive to visualize ideas and abstraction, including God, and leave the word behind. In the Hebrew version, God is unnameable, unknowable, and his name, Yahweh, was not even to be spoken. In Hebrew, dvar means both word and thing. Davar means both to speak and to act. So from this point of view, when I speak, it's creating the world. I'm not imitating the world. I'm creating the world. Now, there's a sense to where the modern world is caught up with that. There's called the social constructionists. And they, their idea of language is that we don't live in the world. We live in our world. We spoke it into existence. We see only what language allows us to see. We cannot see what language does not allow us to see. Therefore, the world we live in is not, wow, thank you. 
the world we live in is not um, necessarily physical reality, but the reality that we create in our heads, right? <laughs> okay, and the Hebrew concept reflects this much more meaningfully, that as I speak, I create the world, as anyone speaks. So Katz is saying it's a reversal. Instead of saying the world is there and language uh, signifies it, it's saying that language signifies everything and the world is there because of language. As if that wasn't enough, this goes on. So God said, now that starts to make a little more sense, doesn't it? And God did what? Said, let there be light, and there was light. Basically, in the Hebrew view, that wasn't God alone that could do that. And you can look at the pattern. What was the first thing Adam was supposed to do? Name the animals. It's almost like the animals didn't exist until Adam named them. All right, so Kat says, the Hebrew God is bodiless, spatialless, invisible, and only to be apprehended by the voice. You think about it, it's logically true. If, if God is invisible, then you could never see God, right? But you could hear God. For the ancient Jews, as for the modern language, was not something theoretical, not just symbolic action. It was physical action in the material and moral world. Speaking of traces, this is the one that I always get my students with. I said, what is the, one of the first things you learn to do when you learn to read? It begins with an S. Spelling, right? We call it spelling. Are you hearing the word? You're casting magic. Spelling. Yes, you're casting spells. When you learn to spell, you're making magic. That's the way the ancient world saw it, that to say something created it. The more I think about this, the more I find it to be true. <laughs> I tell my students sometimes, you know, when they're living and they're getting bad results in their life, I'll say, well, maybe you're just telling yourself a bad story about who you are and what do you need to do? Tell yourself a different story. And often I'll find myself speaking to students, trying to create a different story in their head of themselves so that they'll gain confidence and they'll see themselves as more than wh what they do and maybe move beyond the self-doubts. All right, so this is making sense on a number of levels. All right, it looks like I'm going to stop here, but look out. As Betty Davis said, it could be a bumpy night. <laughs> I always show my students that at the beginning of the semester. <laughs> All right. In terms of the mythos, logos, and rhetoric theme, the Hebrew perspective aligns the three into one telling of divine history. So it, there's no accident that in a lot of ways there aren't really Jewish treatises until a very late period. It's just story. How are we supposed to know God? Story. We don't start seeing Jewish treatises to all the way at the end with Proverbs and with Ecclesiastes. 
So the four narratives I've been talking about for the past two weeks, J, E, D, and P, unite in describing a world in which, okay, I think I put too many words in there, where God is immediate to one, in which God is immediate, you know what I'm trying to say, till we end up with just written words. But that's complicated by the fact that in the Hebrew version, words are also deeds. So this is a reversal of most understanding of language where words reflect the world. This would be the world reflects words. In this view, words literally create the world. So Katz is trying to say that God is beyond words and yet leaves traces of his presence in them. It's a very interesting quote. He says, for if God withdraws from the world and leaves the cosmic void of the universe in the wake, we have a sacred text, language, and a godlike mind, senses, and spirit to experience it. Okay, so the voice can be our tether, and here's where the bumpy rod comes. But, the caveat, as Katz points out, there isn't one word. This sounds so simple, doesn't it? Just obey the word. But do I obey the words of Ecclesiastes? Do I obey the words of Proverbs? Do I obey the words of Exodus? Do I obey the words, you know what I'm saying? Katz also says this, or he quotes Benjamin Summers saying this. Many biblical passages self-consciously look back on earlier passages, and that should make more sense if you've been here the past two weeks, where I'm talking about how the different redactors reinterpreted the scriptures. And in one way or another, reinterpret their meaning. Thus, the interpretation of the Bible begins with the Bible itself. The Bible is interpreting itself. Yep. So when I read Ecclesiastes, that's a later interpretation of earlier stuff. When I read the Deuteronomist version in Deuteronomy, that's a reinterpretation of Exodus. So there are all these reinterpretations going on in the text. In the Jewish tradition... I, uh, I had a professor, uh, the professor that taught me and got me inspired to look at all these things in the first place was a man named William Lane. And uh, one of the things I thought he did that was really marvelous is that when he went to get his degree, he was a Christian and he wanted to be a pastor, but he went to a Hebrew university. He's like, I want to study the Old Testament and learn about it in that context. And then he went to... Uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. Um, but he's, or I don't know which way he did it. He went to Hebrew Union, and he also went to Fuller Theological Seminary. And one of the things he used to quote to me was a Jewish saying, if you get four Jews together, you get five opinions. <laughs> okay, that sounds like something about Jewish people, but I think it's about any time I've ever been with five people <laughs> or four people. <laughs> I just think it's true of human beings, but of course. What he's talking about is this. In the Jewish tradition, it's almost a commandment that every Jew discuss, argue, debate, and reinterpret the Tanakh, God's words, and even argue with God, as we see in so many of the story, stories in the Bible, supposed to be stories in the Bible, from Abraham to Moses to Job to David. So it's no, is, you know, just kind of we go, coincidence? I don't think so. It's no coincidence that written commentary on the Tanakh did not begin until the rabbinic period, guess what, the silent period, 
between 400 BCE and 200 CE. That's when they, the canon was put together. In the Talmud, the Oral Torah, and the Midrash, moral parables and stories after the period of Greek influence and, in fact, under Roman occupation. There we go. So rhetoric as persuasion enters stage right. As soon as you have nothing but text, what are people going to do? They're going to argue. This morning I was thinking about this and I thought, this makes a whole lot of sense. Like, and you'll see Paul will pick up on this idea that the reason that a lot of times that we give rules is because people can't control themselves, right? I talked to my students about how did your first grade teacher get to be so mean? If you had a mean first grade teacher. If you didn't have one, then she hadn't been there long enough. <laughs> but this is how she got to be mean. She started off saying, like, class, okay, so there's good touch and there's bad touch. What's some good touch? Like, hugging, yeah, I got hugging is good. Holding hands, holding hands, that's good. That's good touch and there's bad touch. So they have that discussion, right? And then later on, a couple of kids are in the hall, and one of them's grabbing the other one and pounding his head in the wall, and they're like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm hugging him. <laughs> and what happens to the teacher? She goes, everybody, boys over here, girls over here, up against the wall. That was my teacher. So obviously, I was there too late for the fun, fun teacher. But I couldn't help but think of that analogy in the sense that... Uh, you have this trouble when God is speaking face to face that it's always interpretation in the sense that, you know, who knows who's hearing whom right, yes? And then when you have mediators, you still have a similar problem, which if you put something in writing, then the rules are all clear, but you lose the relationship. Am I making any sense? Yeah, but the rules aren't even clear when you put them in writing. Exactly. <laughs> And that's why, well, thank you for that, because that really is what I was trying to say. And so thus, when everything became nice and clear in writing, it became unclear and arguable, and 400, 600 years of arguing ensued. Well, really, thousands of years of arguing ensued. Okay. So the irony is, all we have are words. God becomes not only the source of absence and despair, but also of longing and hope. God is the obscure object of desire, is what Katz said. So through all of this, our desire, though, through all this argumentation and debate, is presence, right? Presence in the absence. The attempt to know anything of an omnipresent and omniscient and utterly unknowable God must transpire wholly and wholly in and through language. And notice that this point of view continues in the New Testament. In John, Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who do what? Not seen and believed. In other words, heard. Hebrews 1. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of what? Things not seen. That was a cool transition, wasn't it? All right, so I, this quote is quite moving, and it's from uh, Gershon Shalom, quoted in Katz. Man becomes aware of the fundamental duality of a vast gulf which can be crossed by nothing but the voice, the voice of God directing the law and law giving his revelation, and the voice of man in prayer.
Not bad for something in a secular book, is it? Does it look different now? <laughs> it does. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see more of the magnified tenderness of God. Yes. A testament. Yeah. Ah, that word takes on different meaning, doesn't it? A testament is a will and testament. It's a it's something left. I was going to make that comparison, but I was nervous about it. To <laughs> say that it's about desire. Yeah. It's about desire of the one. So you withdraw in order to create interest. There you go. Yeah. Can't, so they can't hear you. <laughs> she said it was kind of like a love story. Am I saying that right? That Go ahead. You say Sorry, it better it's than like I did. A, I, it's like a romantic love story. That's the only way I know how to say it. The, all of this thought and deep thought and deep meaning all reaches back to the fact that God so loved the world. <laughs> you know, he loved us so much. He wanted us. And so you, when you read the Song of Solomon, we see that example. He shows himself. He hides himself. And he's, we desire him. We go looking for him. We ask around, have you seen him? Have you seen my love? So God... I don't know, I just, when he asked, is it clearer? Yes, it's clearer, it's not different, it's better. It's sweeter, I think. I couldn't help but think of a, of a couple of analogies. One is, I was talking about my father. What is one of the things that I would really love to hear? If you lost your parents, you know what I'm talking about. Wouldn't you love just one time to hear what? Their voice, yes? When I was a child, sometimes I'd panic, you know, when you're scared as a kid, and I'd call out, and I'd call out for my father, and he would answer me. That was enough. I didn't really need the glass of water. <laughs> I kind of get that. That makes sense to me, the voice. I went to a conference, and they had us do this thing where we sat back-to-back -back with a person just with our shoulders touching on the floor. And they said, we want you to just talk to each other, but uh, not facing. And it was interesting because we kind of instinctively turned toward each other, our heads, but I wasn't looking at this person. And for some reason, you know, I marveled at the fact that I could only hear the woman's voice, but I felt like I was getting to know her more than I would have if we'd have been sitting face to face. I realized I don't really listen to people's voices that much. I tend to read all these other things at the same time. But having just her voice in my head is profound because actually they told us, don't judge, don't respond, just listen. It was an amazing experience. I still feel close to this woman. I don't even know what she's doing right now, but I still, there was, there was that moment <coughs> we just spoke to each other. And I think we tended to speak more truly. Anything else?
You want to? So if we don't do that, it won't be on the recording. The uh, covenant that was reduced to writing in the Ezra and Nehemiah period that you mentioned, it's the first I'd ever heard that, and that's interesting. Now, if we want to look at the, the covenant with Abraham, you will be my people, I will be your God, your descendants will number more than the stars and more than the grains of sand in the desert, that also was written. Uh-huh. We, we have it now through four generations after Abraham, it got repeated and recorded. That, that covenant has been recorded probably only second to the New Testament covenant of grace. We all know the covenant of Abraham and three world religions lay claim to it. It's it's a 3,000 or more year old covenant Mm -hmm. and it's very well known and it's popular. So if there's a mystical element, metaphysical element to the writing of scripture, God saw that it was written he, he ensured that that covenant was going to get written and quoted and retold by the descendants of Abraham to this day. But the important thing for me is that it wasn't by Abraham. He didn't say, wait a second, let me get a pen. Right. <laughs> I agree with you. That's a, he didn't write. That's a great distinction. And so it was kept orally. Yeah. And I think there's a difference because then you know that the way that we know it is that Abraham told Isaac and Isaac told Jacob. You know what I'm saying? Sure. They told father to son. And so that story goes on and on and on. Who knows when it got written down? And but like you say, it becomes written. But at the same time, it's interesting to me the difference between that and in Nehemiah when it doesn't occur to them to just take God's word for it, so to speak, but to just, let's write it down. They'd become legalists. Yeah, and, and that, that almost spells the end of the covenants until Jesus. So is there an irony that when man decided, well, we better write this down, for what purpose? To hold God accountable or to hold ourselves accountable? It, in, in, it almost polluted the process. That's where Paul ends up taking it. It's to say that, you know, you misunderstood why we got the law. Yeah. And we can't be saved by the law. Well, I get it again by analogy. If I do the things, if I obey all the rules that my parents set up, that doesn't mean I have a relationship with my parents. It means I have a relationship with the rules. And this is what happens, I think, when you put it in writing. This is why sometimes people don't like to put things in writing. Lawyers know all about that. That if you put something to writing, you're committed to it, right? So it's kind of daring on the one sense that God will do that. On the other, uh, the other sense, then that becomes the relationship, and it's all legal. Yeah. See, here I mean by understand and what is his intent with us. That's an interesting word, understand. It means to stand under something and look up. Well, when you said that the other guy had said, uh, I see, I think he meant understood who God really was, not that he actually saw him. 
Yes. So, so what I'm saying is it really doesn't matter to me how I, I want to go back God. and see how often it is that somebody says they saw God that they really heard. Yeah. And that that was profound enough. Now, some of the ones like Ezekiel, they see visions and they see things. But for the most part, there's this kind of blurring between seeing and hearing, which makes sense. I mean, if you really heard somebody, you see, you understand. I don't think it matters how you see God. No, and that was part two of all of this. That if Katz is saying that the text becomes it, the thing, scenario one, you start pretty much just worshiping the text. Or scenario two, you hear the voice in the text. You hear the voice of the author. So that's a different perspective. And I think both things happen. And that's really what happens with the New Testament. It's like, are we going to listen to the voice in the text, or is the text going to be... And I think Christianity kind of falls for the same thing, though. Same problem. I don't know who raised their hand first. It intrigues me that there's these changes in the way... God is related to, whether it's by face-to-face or by second-hand report or by writing. Mm -hmm. And I wonder which came first, the shift in the way the people were interacting (laughs) or the actual shift in what happened, because it it makes me think about the huge changes that are happening in our society right now, where people aren't talking to each other, they're texting back and forth to each other. So, you know, is is God going to start texting us? (laughs) (laughs) That's that's just kind of a joke, but but it's kind of interesting to reflect on, you know, is God responding to the way people are living or are I think the Moses story is actually a justification for that point of view that the people couldn't handle yeah. it They're like God you just be our representative yeah. so I don't know it's interesting that it's one of those traditions that brought that to us so there were different versions of that story so it's, God adapting, be, so it's God yeah. adapting to us as we, we develop more ways truth. to get away from him. Right. <laughs> Jack Nicholson got in our face and told us we couldn't handle the truth. And so therefore, so you can look at it as God adapts to human ways of reasoning, or you could look at it as Katz does, which is God purposely withdraws and leaves his law for particular reasons. I don't know. They're both, both interesting ways to look at it. down the story that your version of it is safe and and it's written it's there for people to see right whereas this if the story gets told over and over again all the other people that come in that didn't really know about it have their version of it and 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 basic points change that's what happened during the time of Josiah before he makes his reforms that's what he realizes they find this book and he's like, we have completely lost this. We are entirely off track because we were living completely without a written text. We were just going on prophets and 
and what was, you know, our own traditions. So we end up with Sumerians and the Canaanites and, and the Jews all having these different points of view. The book solidifies, and, and historically, another thing is happening. The Jews are getting splintered and, and spread all over the Middle East. So they need something to make themselves Jews other than the story. So the Bible gets put together so they can take being a Jew with them. Not too well known, but there was another temple built in Egypt to God, to Yahweh. So there were so many Jews there, they built their own temple. All those different versions, you get the, the plus. Finally, the textual version is something we can go back to. But then they only authorized one version, so there you go. It's a loss and a gain, I guess. That's why it's still called the authorized version. Anything else? Okay. Thank you. Come back next week.